Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here and welcome to this issue of Masters. And as usual, I am so fortunate to be able to use this platform and bring wonderful people who have great personal stories to tell and it's always those personal stories. Uh, what's that Chinese proverb, fall down seven, stand up eight? <laughs> I, I like that because uh, we all fall down. Some of us fall down many, many, many times over and over and over again, but it's that we stand up and whenever we stand up, we have a story to tell. And that story is wisdom. That story, uh, and my new quote is that you can Google facts, you can't Google wisdom. And so we come with wisdom. You know, the older we get, the more wisdom that we have. And it's that wisdom that can benefit other people. And And this wonderful woman that I'm sitting with right now, I like to think that I have some stalkers out there. Not that you were stalking me, but you absolutely, <laughs> I was stalking you. that's, that's okay <laughs> because um, you. I need that. It makes me feel good about myself to know that uh, people want to oh, yeah. stalk me. So, and we were at an, an event in New Orleans mm -hmm. and you aggressively came up to me and said, I've absolutely. got this thing. You had your three second elevator pitch and it immediately caught my attention and and it was a busy time for me. I mean, I was there working, and but you didn't let it go. No. You kept on pursuing this, and that's why we are here today. And so, first of all, Bethany, thank you so much for being aggressive and assertive and all of those wonderful traits and qualities that it takes to get the job done, especially something that you're passionate about that's going to help other people. So I'm sitting here with Bethany Hornthal. Welcome to Masters. Thank you, Wynn, and thank you for accepting my aggressive, passionate approach because I don't know how to take no for an answer. Well, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, the phone doesn't ring. If you were sitting at home, the phone's not ringing with these opportunities. you got to get out there, and sometimes it means at your own expense, your own time, you jump on a plane and you go out there and make things happen. And even though sometimes people say no or they just say not right now, that doesn't mean that it's – a no and, and you right. should give up. You just keep so on not going. Yet. Yeah. Not yet. It's, it's, a, not it's yet. a mindset thing. Yeah. It's not no, it's not yet. That's how I like it. Oh, that's to a great way to look at it. So, <laughs> And you jumped on a plane this morning. to I did. Just to I be did. here and, and make this happen. So thank you so yeah. much. Well, I think that you have a platform, you have a passion, and I think this is something that will be helpful to get out there. Um, so thank you. I'm thanking you. Now, originally... Masters was designed for the beauty industry, but many, many years ago, it expanded much beyond the beauty industry. Although I still live and breathe and passionately work within the beauty industry, I also know the power of the platform that we have in the beauty industry. You and I were just talking in the car that uh, people have learned outside the beauty industry, people who are not hairdressers, they have learned that if you want to get the job done, tell a hairdresser. Right. You want, to, you want to get the job done, ask a hairdresser to get involved because hairdressers know everybody and hairdressers are passionate and hairdressers are philanthropic. They have good, kind hearts. They're paid to help people look good and to feel good. And so you better believe if you're attracted to the beauty industry, you have that that DNA, you have that DNA of wanting to help people feel better about themselves and which means that we get involved in causes that are near and dear to our hearts and you are not from the beauty industry. In fact, just I'm not going to read a lot of this because I don't know that it's all that important. No, it's irrelevant. It's, it is irrelevant, but you are, you graduated from Northwestern University. You worked within the marketing communications services for a number of up-and-coming Silicon Valley companies uh, during that big old boom in the 1980s and 1990s. 
You then uh, switched over to I mean, being a mom. Oh, so <laughs> I, I took a little chapter off to raise some kids. How many kids? I have two who are not exactly kids anymore. I think I have a, a thirty and a twenty-eight year old. So I have millennials. Okay. <laughs> so, so you um, then were the president of the board of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. All kinds of consulting jobs, working in and out of different industries, and now here you are today. In a totally unexpected place. No one had asked me five years ago if I was going to have anything to do with saving hair. Well, maybe nine years ago, I wouldn't have ever thought this was something I was involved in. So, yeah, it's been a pretty serendipitous and, I don't know about circuitous, but different kind of journey. I found my way to healthcare. Ultimately, I've always had an interest in integrative medicine and healing. And even though I started out in root beer and advertising and went into uh, software, and I eventually wound up in healthcare and a nonprofit. And I was fortunate enough to run into a woman who was running the University of California, San Francisco Breast Cancer Center. I had been concerned for many years. Uh, breast cancer was an epidemic in my family. Um, you, you've lost how many family members? That well, you, you I, lost, did, did you lose your mother, your grandmother? I actually did lose my mother and my grandmother, but not both to breast cancer. I lost one grandmother to breast cancer who I never knew, and I had another grandmother with breast cancer. I have a cousin who just passed away from breast cancer at 52. We do have the BRCA gene in our family, okay. uh, which explains some of the breast cancer that we've, we've witnessed. My mother, unfortunately, died at age 35 in a plane accident, and my father was with her. You were 12. Um, so, yes, I was 12 years old. As I think about what I'm doing today, I never put two and two together, but I think that I learned at an early age that resilience is pretty important, that you know, when you're hit with some kind of trauma in your life, if there are people who can enter your life and give you that hand that you need or that word of encouragement, that it's really important. And at this point, I've reached a stage in my life where I am able to give that hand or that word of encouragement. And it's just natural for me to want to turn around and know how important it is to be able to do something. My grandfather taught me, who raised me essentially, that you have to give to get. And I did a video about his life when he was 90, and that was the theme from him. He told me, he said, Bethany, you, you can acquire all the things you possibly want in life, and unless you acquire the desire to help someone else, then you will have nothing to talk about at the end or to feel about at the end of your days. So, so in 1969... So we're coming up on so the So we on did the 50th a Saturday anniversary. Saturday of, was the 50th anniversary. This past Saturday yes, of when I your parents just, were killed. Yes, yes. Uh, three days ago was 50 years since. So you're away, you're 12 years old, you're away at camp for the summer. Yes, I was. And can you tell us the story? I can. Um, I was at camp 
And uh, it was parent visiting day. I had only been there a week, but the kids who'd been there a month got to have their parents come visit, you know, at that point in time. And I had two friends at the camp whose parents came on visiting day because they were already there a month. And they were my next door neighbors and my parents' best friends. And they came and I saw them and they brought me some care package from my parents and it was great. And then they left. It was a Sunday. And then Monday morning, you know, at camp, they wake you up early and it was Michigan and it was cold. And we went to the dining room where we all had our oatmeal or whatever we had. And I was sitting at the table, one of those long tables where we all were supposed to join in and and bus our trays and everything. And I noticed that my friend's parents had come back into the dining hall and it was Monday. And I knew that Sunday was when they were leaving. And I thought that was kind of odd, but I I didn't know it was anything, you know, particularly strange until my counselor came up to me and said, uh, and also to my two friends, their daughters, uh, Lori and Jill, and said, you guys, we need to go back to the cabins and you need to pack up and pack up. What do you mean pack up? They said, well, you're going home. And I thought, okay, I'm 12 now. I'm trying to, why am I going home? I've just been here a week. And so I then started to think, okay, Lori and Jill have some very elderly grandparents, and one of them was not so well. And I thought, oh, I wonder if something happened. And so we're going back, and maybe there's a funeral, and I guess I'm going too. And so we went to the cabin, we packed up, and we got in the car, and there was still, you know, there was no explanation for what was going on, and we were about three hours from Flint, Michigan, where I lived. And I said, "What? you know, at some point we're all kind of, the girls are in the back seat saying, okay, what's going on? And I noticed that Marlene and Milton, my parents' friends, were they were driving, and they both had on dark sunglasses, and it wasn't even sunny out, and they were looking straight ahead. And they just said, there's been an accident. And that's all they said. And then I started to realize that my parents, my father actually had learned how to fly. And he flew, um, he didn't own, but he would rent occasionally this Cessna, you know, single engine plane and fly some of the people from the uh, family owned business that we were involved in to meetings. And that weekend, my parents, he had flown my mother in a two seater to Pittsburgh for a wedding. And then the wheels started to turn. And I thought, oh, my God, this isn't just an accident. This they're talking about my parents. But there were no words. Nobody was talking. And I said, is it my parents? And Marlene said, yes, we're going back to your grandfather's house and we don't know anything. You know, we're just going to go back. Your grandfather wants you to come to his house. So we drove pretty much in silence. And, um, I think all I remember is just feeling cold, just feeling cold. And we arrived at my grandfather's house. And as I got out of the car, I just remember saying, they died, didn't they? And Marlene said, yes. And that really, as I determined now at age 62, 50 years later, 
uh, part of me died with them. I mean, I think I sort of didn't understand what a 12-year-old was doing in the world without her parents. And I had a brother who was two years older, but not exactly equipped either to kind of take over the reins of our lives. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, obviously an incredibly sharp departure from a very idyllic childhood. And at the same time, I was so blessed to have the kind of parents at 35 and 38 years of age who left me kind of knowing what I thought at least they would want me to do. And so I took that information and I think that it's, you know, it's why I stayed home with my kids as even despite everyone was starting to work and it was all the rage to be able to work and have your kids. But I understood firsthand what it meant that my mother had been home and that my father would drive home at six o'clock every single night and I would meet him with my dog on the corner and we would play ball and, and having them so present in my life was an incredible benefit as I lived out these next 50 years, because I can continue to know what they stood for. And one of the things that they stood for, I think, was really just being present and being loving and kind to others. And then my grandfather, my mother's father, who ended up being a significant role model in my life moving forward, was the guy who was always there for people. And so um, I don't think I did so much of it early on, but I think it was just part of my DNA. A couple of things I want to ask you. First of all, uh, here we are 50 years later, and it was just the 50-year anniversary. Yeah. Obviously, even just telling the story 50 years later is very emotional for you. Yeah. Did you avoid telling and sharing this story for a yeah. part of your life? You know, um, I felt like I didn't want to be that person who was kind of wearing the scarlet O for orphan. You know, I didn't want anybody to treat me any differently. I didn't want to be called out as somebody who wasn't the same as everybody else. I didn't want pity. You know, I wanted to just feel normal, which is another theme I think that I, I understand about the ability to feel normal, to have your privacy, to have your identity. Thank you, because I haven't thought about this yet, When You just brought up something that I think ties right into why this whole um, cause that I'm involved with is so relevant uh, for me. And, yeah, so, you know, I think that I thought that if I could just make it to 18, that at 18, everybody left their parents. You know, that's what I thought. And they went away to school or they, you know, moved on to work. And I would be the same again as everybody else. I have a 28 and a 30-year-old. I now know that parents, and my mother would only be 85 today. I now know that parents stay parents in their mm -hmm. children's lives, mm -hmm. which I think, you know, I did probably a better job of a certain kind of accepting of all of this at an earlier stage. And now as I get older, I get a little bit more kind of upset about what was lost. What, what do you mean? Because... It would have been an incredible blessing, I think, to have my parents in my own children's lives. And so as I get older, I recognize that the loss is not a loss that happens 
on July 27, 1969, and then it's over. It's a loss that continues to be a loss. And on the other hand, it continues to be a lesson in how to continue on and take what you can be grateful for and learn something from what life delivers to you because none of us escape this world unscathed. And I think it's what we are able to do with the cards that were dealt that determines, you know, how meaningful our lives end up being. And so... You know, not to diminish what it means to lose one's parents and to instantly become an orphan, but do you feel like you were a better mom because of that experience of losing your parents at 12 years old? Did that make you a better mom? I think it made me a more present Well, that certainly makes you a better mom, you know? (laughs) I um, wanted to witness everything, um, and I wanted to make sure that I could leave as much of a positive imprint on my kids as my mother and father left on me that clearly we don't we underestimate the influence we have on our kids and what they take away at what age so i was really aware of that and i had the advantage of knowing that you know i had a few years to really instill some very important i think values and just spend the time and i was also lucky enough that i raised my kids before as many screens appeared in life as are there now so mm-hmm. you know i witnessed the swim lessons from the bench and you know watched the whole thing and um yeah i think that i hope that i'm a better mom i think i'd have been an even better mom if i had had the role model continue beyond 12 but i do the best that i can you say that there's a uh, two lessons that you tried to instill in your kids. One was that you have to give to get. Expand on that. And by the way, listeners, uh, Bethany is here today because she has founded this incredible product and nonprofit organization and we'll get, we should get there. invention, <laughs> I guess, uh, uh, which we're going to re- related to people going through chemotherapy. And so we're going to get to that. But I, I always feel... It's funny because in your emails, you're like, does my backstory really matter here? I'm like, are you kidding? That's the front story. Well, It's always the backstory yeah. because, I mean, I could read your brochure and, and learn about Hair uh, to, to Stay and, and what you're doing. And yes, I think it's incredible. But to be able to have this private time with you, oh my gosh, this is, this is well, profound. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I do want to be able to let people know what's going on in this, this other arena. But you so, you, see, so you taught your kids uh, you have to give to get. Yeah. What did you mean by that? And, and how did that play out in how you raised well, them? Yeah. It, it, what it meant is that, uh, you know, just being on the receiving end of presents and money and whatever it was that mattered to them at whatever age they were at, was not ultimately the definition of what would make them happy and what would give them meaning. And um, so I I remember, you know, during the, every December, uh, we would get together. Over the year, we would accumulate all the letters that came from all the different charitable causes. And when the kids were old enough and not that old, 
we would have a big bag of all of these letters and we would divide them into categories, you know, homeless and illness and education and whatever, animals and, you know, their schools if they were sending. And we would divide it all up and then they would make decisions about which charitable causes they wanted to donate to their allowance money, which was like a quarter at the time. It was right, very right. frugal with them. And then we told them always we would 10 times whatever they gave to any entity we would give. Of course, we gave whatever we wanted. and we would, But it taught them every single year we did this. And then we got to the point where we put it on an Excel spreadsheet and they were doing it. And it got to be more and more significant because they were now earning funds. And we still do it to this day. Every December, we sit down as a foursome. And we go through all of the different organizations and we make decisions about how we feel about the different causes in the world that we can give to. Oh my so gosh, this is brilliant. That was, <laughs> that was one thing that we did. So now we have an Excel spreadsheet which has year after year after year what each of us have decided to give to each Type of can, I, can I ask what, what are some of the, the causes or charities that your kids... Sure. You, well, they wait, like the SPCA. Wait, do you have two sons? I have a daughter, 30, and a son, 20. Okay, daughter and a son. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they are animal advocates, for sure. Well, you're an animal advocate as well. And your seven-year-old daughter right? is the same. Yeah, I have two. Yeah. I, I am two. Um, but they at, at younger ages, they were very much interested in protecting animals, in protecting the environment. You know, we had a number of environmental causes... The library came up as being a very important. Now, remember, I'm a little older, so they were around when there were books. Right. Um, and so some of these are low-tech kinds of charitable causes. Um, uh, this was a good story. Then we have to get off me a little bit and move on. No, but, we don't. No, we don't. But. This is your interview, and I get to facilitate <laughs> okay. it how I want. All right. Well, um, so I'm Jewish. My son, um, one of the things that we said when they had my daughter had her bat mitzvah there aren't going to be presents, okay? The presents you're going to get is the ability to decide how you might want other people to honor this day for you. Repeat so, that again because that's great. <laughs> Say it again. The presents, the presents you're going to get is you get to decide how you want other people to honor this milestone that you've achieved. Uh -huh. So my daughter chose the Hamilton Family Center in San Francisco, where she had worked in middle school, spent time. And that was perfect. A lot of people donated to that. My son, when it came time for his bar mitzvah, you know, was into video games. And um, by now that was, you know, a thing. So we talked about, well, how can you take this video game thing that you love and bring that somehow to other kids. Okay. And so we came up with the idea that he would get people to donate Best Buy gift cards. Okay. And he did a deal with Best Buy where they would give him a discount. Wait, so how old is and he And he's point? 13. Okay. He's turning 13. Okay. And he would then turn those gift cards into Xbox machines and donate them to the family house at UCSF's Cancer Center for Children. Okay. This is where parents would come with their kids when they were being treated, and they would stay there while their children and their children could stay there if they weren't in the hospital. Like a Ronald McDonald exactly, type house? Okay, exactly. got it. So there is that in San Francisco. And, and so what he did was he put in 10 
Xboxes into their houses. Mm -hmm. They had like two buildings that they had at the time. And then he went on sort of, he picked a couple of Sundays during, you know, the, the year that he would go and he would play with the kids with the Xboxes. And that was how he chose to use it. Now, I want to just fast forward about, uh, let's see, he was 13. So when he was 23 and he had graduated from college, he took a job at Electronic Arts. Well, because his mother told him that video games would destroy his life. And so he, <laughs> you know, waved his hands like, right. And then he took a job at Electronic Arts. And lo and behold, they built a new family house in San Francisco, brand new facility. And one of the children that had used the family house had bought new Xboxes for the new house. And then he had passed away like two months after they opened the new house. And so they didn't have the controllers for the the Xbox, and they didn't have the games. Mm -hmm. Now my son is at Electronic Arts that has all the sports games and whatever else. So he was able to bring, like, I don't know, 100 games to the family house, you know, 10 years later. And so I think when that kind of physical reality of watching yourself pay it forward somehow or help someone else I think you learn that you have to give to get so what are I'm curious about this whole story behind (laughs) it so the four of you your husband and your two kids you all sit down and you look at this spreadsheet yeah have you been able to put a dollar amount so oh wow to date we've donated x amount to this charity and and we're currently supporting this many different causes is that something that you all sit down and look at you and say wow well we look what we've accomplished you know it's interesting we never did because we didn't want them to see necessarily what we were giving or what money looked like in that way you know for them ten dollars was huge so when we said okay now it's a hundred they thought it was like enormous so you know it's funny i think we'd have to go back now and unhide some of the columns that were probably hidden but that's a great idea i think you know, we could go back and we could probably figure out what that has turned into for them. Mm. And thank you. I'll try that in mm. December. <laughs> we'll do it. Well, sometimes we so. don't know. We just, we just, yeah. It's, I think the best way to judge ourselves or to evaluate how we are isn't to compare ourselves to somebody else. Right. It's to look back over our own right. shoulder right. and say, wow. Because when I look ahead, I'm like, oh gosh, I have so much work to do. I know. You know, when I look ahead, I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, my gosh, physically. And I'm exhausted to think what I need to accomplish, what I want to accomplish looking forward. And that can be exhausting and sometimes overwhelming. But when I look back over my own shoulder and and I see how far I've come, wow, look what I've accomplished in the last year, in the last 10 years, in the last 30 years, and to pat myself on the back, I think that's that's, important. That's important. And I think some of us are so forward-driven that we don't do that enough. The second lesson you try to teach your kids is don't take no for an answer. <laughs> yes. That's a bad thing to teach your kids, actually. <laughs> I have to tell well, you. When it, when it comes to how they negotiate with you, yeah. is that it? Well, you never take no for an answer. Why should we? Yeah. <laughs> that comes right back oh, at you. Oh, my gosh. I know that the things we say to them today, they're used against us the very next yeah. day in seven-year-old yeah. negotiations. Uh, yes. I mean, I, humi- right. I have humiliated my kids on more than one occasion by I'm not a real good rule follower always. And so, I mean, you know, I've done things in – toll booths where I made a mistake and I just kept going and they were mortified and you broke the law and, you know, whatever else. So there have been a few instances. But I am a firm believer that when you run into a wall, 
you don't stop because you ran into that wall, you, you know, the ever ready bunny or whoever that is, you turn around and you find another opening because there's going to be another opening mm-hmm. in 99.9%. And you just have to persist. And if you give up, you'll never find the opening, right? And so they know that I am not good at seeing them take no for an answer either. And that if there's something that they want to accomplish, I believe mostly they can. Mm-hmm. They just need to really persist and keep going and uh, be resilient. So, all right. That's incredible. So that's some backstory. Again, I, I think the backstory is great. I firmly believe that we are all storytellers and that we have incredible stories to share and those stories are going to inspire other people. Now that people feel like they, oh, I know Bethany. Bethany's my buddy. <laughs> okay. She and Wynn are having a great time talking right now. I, I can relate to Bethany. What does Bethany now have to sell me? What does Bethany now have to, to teach me? And, and yeah. so I okay, always good. think that that's We've warmed them all up now. There you go. There we go. All right. <laughs> I mean, you, you say that uh, because of your experience at 12 years old losing your parents, you know what it feels like to feel hopeless and traumatized and, and overwhelmed, which is a good segue in, into this. Yeah. We know what it feels like for a woman or for anybody getting that diagnosis of cancer with now you are going to maybe lose body parts. You're going to have massive scarring. Yep. And now on top of all of that, you're also going to lose your hair. And a lot of people think, what's the big deal? It's, <laughs> it's just hair What's the big deal? And you shared that statistic about how many women will refuse, how many patients will refuse chemotherapy because of that. Can you just share that with us? Yeah. Uh, there's a study done that showed that fully 8% of female patients will decline chemo due to their fear of losing their hair. And if you talk to a breast oncologist, you'll find that that number is probably way low. That's the women who were willing to report that they had declined chemo for that reason. But the oncologist will say, oh, no, it's much more. Yeah, it's higher than that. And the first question typically asked, especially for a breast oncologist, from a patient who has just been told that they will require chemo for their diagnosis of breast cancer is... Not, will I save my life? Believe it or not. The first question is frequently, am I going to lose my hair? Hmm. Because I think that the idea, you know, lose my life. We're going to fight for my life. That's a given. And you're going to do everything you can. But what can I fight for too? What do I have control over So am I not only going to lose my breasts, am I also going to lose my privacy, my identity, my sense of normalcy? When I look in that mirror, who will I see for two years? And my sense of well-being. And so I think what we've discovered is losing your hair means you potentially are going to lose all of that. And then this study shows that for eight to 10% of people, you could actually lose your life if you don't go ahead with a chemotherapy treatment. And trust me, I'm not saying chemotherapy is for everybody. I'm not saying that 
the treatment that we're going to talk about, scalp cooling is for everybody. But what I believe is that patients should have the option. They should have the option of choosing, being able to choose whether or not they want to try to save their hair during their chemotherapy. Okay, we need to... <laughs> now we can back up. We need to take all this in. Because again, myself included, you hear that. I mean, I shave my head. So I'm, I'm choosing because right. I think I look you younger look cool. and hotter you and cooler good. and mm-hmm. everything else, right? So I'm, I'm making that, that choice. choice. And so some people listening to this are thinking, again, it's just, it's just hair. What you just educated us on that for a woman, she's trusting that the doctor is going to save her life. She doesn't have a lot of control over that other than just saying, yes, I surrender. I'm in your hands. I I trust you and I believe in you. What she does have control over is her hair and hair represents so many things. And you gave us this list for a woman to to feel like she's going to lose her identity. Mm -hmm. Um, She's going to look in the mirror and she's going to be unrecognizable to herself. That's one part of it, which I want you to expand on. But she's now also unrecognizable to her husband, to her kids. Yep. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest incentives we find that among recipients that we subsidize for scalp cooling, an incredible number have children at home. And what they are concerned about is traumatizing their children because suddenly... Mommy shows up one day, and she's bald. And depending upon the age of the child, they're completely freaked out. It's like, oh, my God, what happened to Mommy? And she's sick? Is she dying? I mean, where did my Mommy go? Right. And so for a mother, it's one thing to look at the mirror in the mirror and see somebody they don't recognize, but it's another thing to know that their children aren't going to recognize them. Mm. And that is devastating. So that brings on the whole added pressure of now I've got to educate my kids. I'm going through this myself. Right. Now I've got to educate my kids on how they are going to process what's happening in this. Exactly. And just this last week, I mean, we're starting at the at the end of the story. And then I'd love to explain what, what it is we're talking about. What is scalp cooling? Why does it save somebody's hair? What does that mean? But I received a letter from a mother last week, who said, my 10 and 11-year-old boys, I have my last chemo treatment July 24th, and my 10 and 11-year-old boys don't even know that I have breast cancer. And that's how I wanted it. Hmm. And that's how we got it, because I still have my hair. And this woman was going through treatment for how long? I don't know exactly, probably four to six months. Wow. And her kids didn't even know? Don't know. And they still don't know. And she said they shouldn't have to deal with this. So, I mean, it's not something you necessarily think of when you think about, you know, again, like you said, some people say it's just your hair. It is not just your hair. It's a lot of other people that get impacted also Hmm. and in a big way. You rattle off that list quickly about what hair loss means. Yeah. Can you yeah. go through some of those points again? So, because sure. I feel like we have to be educated here. We have to be able to yeah. step into somebody else's shoes in order for us to have empathy and compassion and all of those things that then helps us 
get active. Right. Do something about this. Right. Well, I don't think actually there's anybody who experiences the hair loss next to the patient. Stylists uh, in salons are frequently the first people that are told by their clients, their guests, that they have a diagnosis of cancer and they have this intimate relationship and they're the ones that find out sometimes first, second, or third, and they are the ones who are being asked sometimes to do the chemo cuts to help that patient, that client, deal with the hair loss. Okay, what's a chemo cut? So a chemo, I would have been schooled by some of the stylists to say that that's what they call it when a person comes into them and says, I have cancer, will you shave my head? Will you cut my hair? What do I need to do? So they have to be the ones to sometimes go to that person's home and do it in the privacy of their own home. But how many stylists have been faced with the need to help somebody who's going to lose their hair, lose it first, uh, you know, without watching clumps of it fall out in the bowl when they're washing their hair or for that person on their pillowcase. Which, what does that feel like? So, I, you know what, I, I can't even imagine when you, you know, wake up and you find that, you know, a third of your hair is still on the pillowcase from the night before. So, you, you, so when you started all of this, which, again, we still haven't even got into <laughs> what it is that you have created here. When you started all of this, you, you mentioned to me earlier before we started recording that you thought that the industry you would go to – that would help you with this would be the pharmaceutical industry. And yeah. you soon wrong. realized that that was, <laughs> that was wrong. Okay. That was naive. And so did you know that it was going to be the beauty industry? I no. mean, did you know that, no. No, that, that, that women no, getting this diagnosis are now sometimes the first person they're going to is their hairdresser to say, I have this diagnosis or yeah. maybe they're telling their husband or their significant other first. And then they're telling their hairdresser because you're going to hairdresser. You're going to help me through this process. Did you realize that that well, was no, I was intimacy kind of, kind of naive and a little stupid about the whole thing. I, okay. So at this point in my life, I'm working in the healthcare industry. I'm a consultant for a breast cancer center, UCSF's Breast Cancer Center. My job is to find funds to support clinical trials that are innovative and that can help hopefully find an end to this horrifying This disease. was your job how many that years ago? That was what I was doing nine years ago. It was my job starting about 15 years ago. Okay. I found my way to this rock star breast cancer director of the Breast Cancer Center at okay. UCSF, Laura Esserman. And she's a surgeon and a researcher, and she asked me to join her team as a consultant. And two jobs that I had were to find funding for her trials and to do the publicity for her trials and her that would bring more interest and awareness to what was going on in the field. So in that capacity, we were on a bike ride one day. And she, this is a basic Silicon Valley story taking place in San Francisco. We are at the ferry building and she, we stop for lunch and on a napkin, she writes scalp cooling and she turns it to me and she says, have you ever heard of this? I'm thinking tribal rituals. I mean, I don't know what this is. No, was the answer. I've never heard of it. What is it? She said, well, as it turns out, a patient at our breast cancer center has been diagnosed with breast cancer. She's losing both of her breasts. And she said to us, I'm getting divorced. I'm losing my breasts. And I understand that in Europe, actually, women are keeping their hair. 
and I don't understand why I can't do that here. I want to get that machine, whatever it is. I want it to be here. How do I do that? At which point Laura started to think, you know, she had heard bits and pieces that there were treatments going on that were helping some people say they're here, but she really hadn't, it hadn't come to this country and there was no FDA approval of anything. So she gave me the charge of, first of all, go research this scalp cooling thing and see if it works and why it works. So I did that first and I found that there was a company in Sweden and a company in the UK that had machines called scalp cooling machines. And what they did is that while a patient was sitting in their infusion, there was a machine that sat by the infusion chair and had a tube that, you know, had this cold liquid that went into a cap that was worn on the patient's head. And what it did was it circulated this coolant at a particular temperature, kept it at like 30 degrees, very cold, And the patient would wear that for 30 minutes before the infusion, during the infusion, and then for about 90 minutes afterwards. And what was happening is that by chilling down the scalp, what was created was something called vasoconstriction. The blood vessels in the scalp, because they were cold, you know when you're cold, you kind of tighten up? So the blood vessels tighten up. And when they tighten up, they constrict, they get smaller, and they only let in about 20% of the chemo that they would have otherwise. So they're protecting the blood vessel in the follicle. The second thing that happens is that when you chill down a cell, you slow down the metabolism of the cell. So we've all heard probably that chemo targets fast-growing cells. So it's why it destroys your hair. It's a very fast-growing cell. It destroys your nails. And it even destroys mucous membranes, like in your mouth, people will get mouth sores. Those are fast-growing cells, the fastest-growing cells in the body. If you chill down a cell, you slow it down. And that means that it's not reproducing so quickly, and it's not as vulnerable. So those two mechanisms, vasoconstriction, where you're tightening the blood vessel down and constricting what it can allow in, and you're slowing the follicle down the cell, mean that you're going to protect that follicle, and therefore you're going to have much less hair loss. So we were very intrigued, and I brought her back the information, and she said, all right, so we need to do an FDA trial, because the reason this isn't in this country is because nothing can come into a hospital that isn't FDA approved, Mm -hmm. the Food and Drug Administration. So, And these two companies were so small that they couldn't afford to do an FDA trial in this country. So uh, my job was to find a funder who would fund the UCSF FDA trial. So we did that. And for five years, we had five sites around the country and academic medical centers in New York and California and North Carolina. And 122 women with breast cancer used scalp cooling. And we didn't have to have a control group because everyone loses all of their hair if they're using these chemos. And we know that. And the FDA knows that. We had to prove that using scalp cooling and the machine from Sweden first, 50% of these patients would save at least 50% of their hair. Mm. So we got to 69% of those patients saving at least 50% of their hair. And in December of 2015, the FDA granted clearance to scalp cooling for the first time Mm. in this country. So at that point, I had spent a fair amount of time in infusion centers around the country, enough to know that cancer does not discriminate in terms of, you know, who gets it and how much money they have. 
And insurance, also it was clear to me now that the insurance industry was not particularly interested in taking on something else to cover. So now we had a situation where I had been party to helping to introduce something into this country that now only people, maybe like me, maybe like you, could afford. But a third of the population at least was not going to be able to afford it. And scalp cooling, and at least until insurance comes into play. What, what does it cost? So scalp cooling, there are two methods of scalp cooling now. One is this automated system that I told you about. And in that case, every time a patient has a treatment, they're charged per treatment. Okay, And the treatments now, depending upon the hospital, because they have some say, and depending upon which of the two systems they will pay about $400 per treatment. And the number of treatments, obviously, is going to vary depending on the type of cancer and the protocol of chemo that you have. But so educate us cancer, on a woman going through how many treatments would right. she have so of infusions normally, of chemotherapy, right. which then now is going to include this treatment of scalp cooling, how right. many? So typically in breast cancer, a woman will have every three weeks an infusion for the average is four to six infusions. So in the automated system world, that would be $400 times four treatments, $1,600, or $400 times six treatments, $2,400. The range that we see is somewhere between $1,200, and I'll explain that, and $3,000, depending upon what type of cancer uh, and what type of chemo. The other system that you can use if you are not, there are now 400 hospitals in this country that offer and have machines, including all the big ones, Memorial Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, Dana-Farber, UCSF, Stanford, UCLA, so all over the country. If you're somewhere where they don't have the machine yet, there's another approach which is called manual scalp cooling, where you rent caps from one of, there are five suppliers that we will subsidize, we, we believe do a good job, and those suppliers charge by the month. So you rent a set of caps, and the reason you need a set of caps is because when you use the machine, the machine makes sure that your head is always 30 degrees. When you use the caps, you put them on, and then your head warms the cap up after about 30 minutes. So you need to have someone with you who can change to the next cap, and you need to potentially have dry ice. It's a more difficult but it is the way it was done for the first 20 years in Europe and the way it was done here when we didn't have FDA clearance by the six or seven people that knew about scalp cooling. But it's as effective as the machines. It's just more inconvenient for a patient. Those charge by the month, and they charge about 400 a month. So maybe over, if you're every three weeks, maybe it's only three months that you have to rent them for, so it might be $1,200. So what happened was we decided, I decided that we needed a way to subsidize patients who weren't going to be able to afford it. Can I ask you a question yes. before you go on? You, see, you said there's about 400 hospitals that now have these machines. Yes. And do you feel like these hospitals are, are doing a good job? So while they're saying, by the way, we're going to put you through this and this and this, we're going to utilize these drugs. Oh, and by the way... We're going to help you save your hair by, is that part of their script as well or part of their routine as well? Or do they sometimes forget that, wow, this is an important factor and we should be educating our patients about scalp cooling as well? So you're leading the witness here. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm really good at that. You are. The truth is that 
This started out being a treatment for breast cancer only. That's what the FDA trial was on. So that's the only disease we could go with first. It took another year for them to clear all solid tumor cancers for scalp cooling. Okay, so what that means is that where you don't use scalp cooling is in blood cancers like leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma. Okay. okay, and the reason is that you're creating kind of a little sanctuary up in the scalp, in the follicle, right? Okay. You're not going to be treating it with chemo. Now, with a solid tumor cancer, people talk about metastasis. What if that tumor goes from being in your breast and moves to your scalp, okay. and you're not killing it off in the scalp? Well, the answer to that is that, at least in breast cancer and in most cancers, Scalp metastases happen in sometimes less than 1% of cases. And if they did happen, they are not the next place that cancer goes, and they're not the most dangerous place to have cancer. They go; It goes to your organs and your brain and your bones, and that is what can become terminal. So, so blood cancers are circulating in the blood. You do not want to create a sanctuary anywhere in right, the body, Right. right? So, okay, so first of all, we are talking about solid tumor cancers. And the breast oncologists in this country have had three to four years now of conferences where they've heard about scalp cooling. And they are much, much more aware of scalp cooling's existence than some of the other cancer areas. So, I'd love to think that every oncologist, when they meet with their patients with solid tumor cancers, they're saying, oh, and by the way, when the patient says, am I going to lose my hair? They're going to say, you know, not necessarily. We have this treatment that you can take advantage of. It's getting a lot better. Some of it is a little cultural. We find that more of the female doctors are quick to tell their patients about it. Some of the slightly older male uh, doctors right. may say, look, you know, I'm worried about their lives. Right. I'm not as worried about their hair. And that's kind of indicative of a certain kind of generational and gender issue. So, yes, there is education that still needs to happen. So you started this company, this organization called Hair to Stay. You're the yes. co-founder. You're the president. Yes. Tell us why. Uh, and you have a story about your co-founder, Patsy. Yeah. That I think would be right. important to share. Right. So in December of 2015, when the clearance came through, that's when, I mean, before that a little bit, but that's when I really got serious about, okay, this is not okay that insurance isn't covering this and there are going to be all these people that are going to be interested and can't can't afford it. So I looked around to see, was anybody subsidizing this treatment anywhere in this country? Was anyone, you know, how do we do this? And So you weren't satisfied that, cool, 400 hospitals, is FDA approved? No, 400 <laughs> hospitals have it. It's available, um, so I'm, I'm done. Well, you, you know, weren't satisfied okay, with no that. for an answer, right? Okay, I mean, you, you know. So I, I mean, first we weren't in 400 right off the bat. So I had a job still to do. The first thing was, does it work? The next thing was, how do we fund it? A trial. The third thing was, how do we get through this trial for five years? And then the next thing was, we got through the trial. Now we got to get the awareness up so that these hospitals will actually adopt this technology. So there was that piece. And I think my background in communications and public relations, I wanted to be part of the 
PR effort that moved it. So I signed up the first company that had FDA approval with a PR firm, and I helped manage that sort of messaging. And then I was looking for some way to subsidize. And there was an article written about what we were doing at UCSF, and this person contacted me and said, and and the article mistakenly said that we had a fund, a national fund. When we were wanting to have a fund, that's like the thing of when you put it out there. Yeah, you know, there so, you go. But I didn't say it. I promised when I did not say we had a no, fund. No, what I we say we is I, I like to say that we tell the truth in advance. Yes, we were looking yeah, to we create have a, fund. a fund. Sure, we've know, got one. Day, right. So I get an, a note from somebody who says, look, I have a, I'm on the board of a, an organization called Cold Cap Assistance Projects. And our founder, Patsy Graham, is funding patients for scalp cooling. She's a breast cancer survivor who was one of the first and only people who actually experienced scalp cooling. And she was so thrilled by the result. She had already lost her hair after the first infusion, and that's when she found out about scalp cooling. This is like seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And so she got the caps from Penguin Cold Caps, it was called, and she started to wear them. Well, the truth is when you protect your scalp, even if you've lost your hair, it's going to grow back sooner because mm-hmm. it's not being assaulted every time you have chemo. She had 16 chemo infusions. Oh, my gosh. Okay, she had a very serious, very difficult chemo and an aggressive breast cancer. She came through the end of it, and by the end of it, she was already having hair coming back and was growing her hair in. So she was so enthralled. It's sort of like the um, Gillette story. She decided to work for Penguin Cold Caps, to go to work for them. And uh, at this point, she was in her 60s, and she goes to work for them, and she realized that there were patients that couldn't afford it. So she started to subsidize patients out of her own pocketbook. Uh, pocketbook's an old phrase, isn't it? Okay, well, she anyway, she started her wallet, her, wallet. her bank account, yeah. her uh, GoFund. Anyway, she started to subsidize patients, and this was somebody who was associated with this, and they got in touch with me. So I called her. I said, Patsy, where do you want to go with this? Because I'm trying to subsidize patients. She said, well, now that you've got this FDA clearance, I can't even handle, because I was getting one patient or two patients a month. That was one thing. But now, you know, they're getting two patients a week. You know, so we agreed to get together. I said, you got to change the name of this thing. We're going with hair to stay. If what you, was it called? It was cold cap assistance. I mean, it, it did spell out caps or something, but okay. I was I was into got sticky, it. you know, and I felt like hair to stay was related to here to stay and okay. people would feel like they were here to stay and helping cooler heads prevail was our new tag. And so we went out together, okay. uh, Patsy and me. And Patsy then was handling all the vetting of the patients, and I was handling, I said, I'll go do the fundraising and marketing of this. And then Patsy turned 70 the next year and decided that she would rather spend time with her grandchildren, (laughs) which I understood, and that we were off and running, and she handed the baton in full to me. So Patsy's still an incredible supporter. She'll go meet with any patient. She's a great liaison because she, unlike me, has actually experienced it and is speaking from the not just wisdom but from experience. And so in 2017, Hair to Stay became my baby in, in full. And we started out, we were subsidizing about two patients a week or, you know, maybe three patients, four patients a month, I guess, was where we were. Today, we may get anywhere from 10 to 20 patients in a week that we're approving. We've approved over 1,400 patients for subsidies 
of $1,000 to $1,500 each. So it's become... It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. There's a big appetite. More and more people are finding out about it. And so we had to find a way to continue uh, to raise the money. And that's when I thought, okay, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, they caused the problem, right? They should be interested in solving the problem. They got billions. They got lots of money. They got nothing to do with it. This would be great PR for them. By the way, there's even a company out there that was causing permanent baldness with their product, with their chemo, and is being sued to this day for permanent baldness. And I thought, oh, God, this is a slam dunk. So I went to ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology Conference, and talked to every pharmaceutical company that would let me in their booth. And zero were the number of pharmaceutical companies who told me they were interested in doing anything about this. Uh, They classically didn't want to be associated with hair loss. And uh, it was just my fantasy was that... Which is mind-boggling, uh, and I don't even want to get into no, it. No, right? but my fantasy... But you don't take no for an answer. No, I don't. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well, this industry may be a dead end. Then I went to my own stylist because I started to think, you know, who understands the importance of hair? What am I thinking? The pharmaceutical industry doesn't even get it. Who gets it? Oh, my God. The hair care industry gets it, you know, and actually they also have a financial incentive to make sure that people come in there and have their hair to do something with, right? Right. So I figured that might be a better place for me. I knew nothing other than those facts. I went into my own salon, which was DiPietro Todd in San Francisco. Love them. I love them, too. I spoke. I didn't know Andrew Todd at the time, but I asked somebody which one he was. And they said, he's not in here right now. I said, well, what day does he come in? And they told me the next time he'd be there and that he had his staff meetings and that if I snuck in five minutes before, I might be able to talk to him for two minutes. So as you said, I had my two-minute elevator pitch ready. I got in there before his staff meeting that next week, and I said, Andrew, I have to tell you about this incredible option that we can give to people so that they can keep coming to your salon, even when they have chemotherapy treatments and they're losing their hair. They're not going to lose their hair. And he said, what are you talking about? And we discussed it, and he decided within, I think, five minutes of that moment, he and his wife, Kim, that they would donate 1% of their retail product sales to hair to stay for that entire first year. And they did. What, what it, did that amount to, dollar amount? I think we were in the about $20,000. Yeah. So for us, every $1,000 we raise is a patient's life transforms their cancer treatment journey and their whole family and their loved mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, 20 patients were basically mm-hmm. given a gift by DiPietro Todd. And I was given the gift of knowing that I had found home base for the most generous people that I was going to meet and the ones that completely understood that this wasn't just vanity, but that it was a lot deeper than that and a lot more serious than that and impactful. And so from that point on, I set my sights on learning (laughs) the hair care and beauty industry bit by bit. And um, trying to engage this industry in a cause that I know resonates. So, so how in the brochure that you have, you name several prominent hairdressers and leaders within the beauty industry who are supporting you and have gotten involved with you. And 
I know several of them, which is uh, pretty incredible. So congratulations on that. You know exactly who to go to. <laughs> well, I learned. You know, I, I love Scott Buchanan and Kerry Davis. And so congratulations to the two of you who hopefully are going to listen to this. <laughs> And uh, thank you. They're and of course, people. that also means I just put more pressure on them <laughs> that they have to. Oh, dang it, when when called us oh, out, so we have yeah. to do more. No, so they're great. They're so great. that that's great. So how are you raising money? How are the salons raising money? Because it's easy to get people to say yes. It's like uh, ready, fire, aim. You know, yeah. okay, fine, I'll fire. Yes. Right. Now what do I do? Right. So give us some ideas on how salons, how individuals. Uh, are helping to raise money right. and, and awareness because awareness is key as well. Yeah. Well, the, the first piece is you people who are listening right now, you now have a gift you can give to people who come into your salon because I guarantee you, you will come across somebody and they may not even just come into the salon, but they may come into your life with a diagnosis and you're going to be able to say, you know what? There is this thing called scalp cooling that you may be able to take advantage of or whomever you end up needing to help with that idea. So first of all, there are probably only 10% of the people in the country who have ever heard of scalp cooling. 10% have even heard of it. I would say that's, that's about I had, where we I, are. I didn't know until you approached yeah. me in January, right. so just uh, yeah. eight months ago in New Orleans. Right. Okay. So I would say that that number, I've been using that number uh, I did a survey, you know, about six years ago, and I think people just tell you that they've heard of something because <laughs> the number was about 9% then, and okay. I, I think we've done more. But I, I really, based on the number of people I talked to who have not heard of it, I'm telling you 90% of the people still don't know. Right. And, you know, it's mostly the medical world that is aware. And yeah. so, first of all, awareness is critical. For us, awareness alone obviously doesn't allow us to write checks every week to the patients that come to us and need our help. So raising funds is critical. And the way that we've been doing it is there are multiple ways in the hair care industry. Um, obviously, anybody can write a check and send it to Hair to Stay and doesn't have to be doing anything other than that. And that money will go directly to a patient's head. But what we've done with salons, uh, some of the things that have happened, I, I really don't know a lot about your business. And so I say to the salon, you know, what have you done in the past to raise funds? What works for your salon or your type of salon and your business model? And what we've found is that in some cases, uh, we've sort of chosen Mother's Day or May and Breast Cancer Awareness Month or October, and salons have done cutathons. In some cases, the stylists want to donate their time and their tips or whatever it is. In some cases, they do want to ask their guests to participate. Um, they may do raffles. We have, I think Scott Buchanan's a great case where he had it in the point of sale system so that at the front desk, they asked, do you want to contribute to this charity here to stay that allows patients it's to so save easy. their hair? I get asked that every time I go to Whole Foods. I get asked that every time I go to Rite Aid. I get asked exactly. that every time I go to multiple right. stores. Hey, today, of course I'm sure so, why not? And, and so we're working with uh, Rosie and Forrest and some of the point-of-sale systems now to Salon Biz. I mean, these are companies talking to us about um, I believe like Green Circle does things in this uh -huh. industry, having a button that says hair to stay where right. you can just ask at the desk and the guests can decide. That's great. So that's another way. So raffles, cutathons, whatever fundraising methods a salon is comfortable with, 
we're all about that. Uh, Gila Root has done, you know, conditioning treatments or blow dries or whatever. You know, they've come up with their own sort of model of how they want to approach it. So that's one thing that we've done with salons. Some donate a percentage of, like Andrew, sales, retail sales, Mm -hmm. products. Some have chosen a particular treatment or product during a period of time and gone with that. We are also working with the distributors now to see if we can get them to provide incentives. We're working with the point-of-sale software companies to provide free software to the salons that are, are doing the best jobs. We're looking Bottom line, you're, you're not doing one thing. You're doing everything. <laughs> we're working, we're like what you were saying, if, there, if there's a dead end there, you're no, going to find an it. opening somewhere. Uh, we, we're working with brands. You know, people are starting to wake up in the industry to say, wait a minute, there's a new kid on the block. Mm -hmm. You know, I am a firm believer that there are, I don't know how many worthy charitable causes. It's not about robbing from Peter to pay Paul. We're just a new opportunity for an organization to look at and decide if it's relevant for what they believe, what they do. And um, so, you know, we're not entering the world where nobody has a cause they're already interested in. You know, we're joining a world. And so talk about don't take no for an answer. I was trying to learn this industry. And so I took a flight to Las Vegas in July. Oh, my God. Yes. Bad idea. Vegas, right. (laughs) Yes. And there was the big Cosmoprof business-to-business show. I I just was told this is a a good show to learn a little bit about the industry. And I went to the biggest, most attractive, colorful booth I could find, which was a company called Amica. And I went up to the guy who looked like he had the word CEO or founder on his tag. And I put out my hand and I said, Shay, because it said S-H-A-Y, you know, nice to meet you. And he said, Shy. (laughs) I said, okay, well, we've started. <laughs> so I said, but you got to help me. He said, well, what do you need? And it really went from there. And that was two years ago. Yesterday, I went to that same conference. They had a badge for me that got me in. I didn't have to beg, which I did in July, two years, three years ago. And they presented me with a can of hairspray, their most popular hairspray. And that can, when you turn it to the back, said, one dollar per can will be donated to mm. Here to Stay. Wow. I broke, you know, the tears. And then it described Here to Stay. And I know that they've ordered 30,000 of those cans and they've sold them out. Wow. And that they are giving 1% of their e-commerce sales to mm. us. And that's amazing. So, you know, I will <laughs> turn over every stone and meet the most influential people, which I set my sights on you in, to get the word out to find ways to engage in this cause. And uh, every $1,000 is going to transform somebody's experience from very overwhelming to maybe not so overwhelming. And that's, which, which you know. Which is significant. If we can just ease a little bit of that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, I do not know how to cure cancer. I wish I did. You know, that would be the best. But... If I can, where I can make a difference is I can maybe make it a little less traumatic for somebody. Not me. We can make it less traumatic. And so that's what we need to do. I also, you know, the hair care industry is my home base. I started with friends and family and our own 
you know, funds. And I we developed this year, we are going to put on something called Hair to Stay the Diva Way in okay. San Here you go. You got your, your fundraising All event right. coming up. Heads okay. up. Listen, everyone. So this um, is happening November is the happening. 7th, 2019. This yes. is a big event. And we're going to take on Herps Theater, which is a 900-seat theater. Talk about go big or go home. I don't I don't know how many people right. will be in those seats, <laughs> but we've called it Hair to Stay the Diva Way, and we have a diva, Isabel Leonard, headlining the event. And we've got, remember the doctor I told you about who was the very first one who ran and runs the UCSF Breast yes. Cancer Center? She is a diva, and she is a singer, and she and another surgeon will also be performing That's that great. night. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? And we have other San Francisco performing artists, and we will know undoubtedly we're sort of known. Last year we did a drag couture fashion show. Mm-hmm. This year I'm quite sure that will be part of what well, we've got we involved. In we are in San Francisco. Yeah. We enjoy ourselves. And, and we will have recipients who will talk about what this means to them. We'll have a reception, VIP reception, an after party if we can arrange it and – this is, you know, a way, and the reason it's the diva way, that's what I really want to focus on, is because our feeling is that when you get a diagnosis of cancer, it's very possible to lose that sense of yourself as being sort of an empowered leading lady, if you will stick to the ladies, but it's not just ladies, mm-hmm. but an empowered person who is a diva in their own way, however you define diva inside and outside. And so we think that if you can help them continue to look like themselves Mm -hmm. and feel normal, that you can help them hang on to their sense of divaness. And I think that, you know, health is, it's a composite picture. It's not just, it's your whole self that has to go into healing. And I think that having a mental picture of yourself Mm. as that diva and a psychological mindset that you are powerful and you are beautiful and you are resilient. That's why we're going with hair to stay the diva way. You know, the people's lives are completely turned upside down. And as we talked earlier, throw kids into that mix, you know, so to be able to do anything, provide anything that brings them a bit of normalcy. Yeah. To their lives, that's that's important. Yeah. And I think that's what you just showed me too in in our interview that I never understood about myself, is that my identity and my privacy, and my sense of normalcy were all changed and were all impacted. And so I guess that's one of the reasons I really relate to being able to do something about those particular aspects for somebody else you said that at your diva event you're going to have some of the recipients some of the women who have benefited from this can you share with us one of those stories oh i mean there are a lot of stories um so i mean we have a, a recipient Liz Acosta, who is on our homepage, and she's three minutes. And you, if you watch those three minutes, you, I could talk to you for 90 minutes. She talks to you for three minutes. You know, right. it's, it's done. She was 30 years old when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she's this very public person, and she's got a blog and stuff. And she wasn't going down, you know, the path that people were suggesting she needed to go down. She actually found out about scalp cooling by Googling, you know, hair issues and things. And um, it ended up that we were able to give her a subsidy and she was able to save her hair. 
And she is one rock star who just felt like because she had her hair, she could go work out. She could go to her social events. She could continue to show off her tattoos and her everything else the way she liked to. And she wasn't isolating herself, which I think she was worried about. She stayed public. So she's one who will be there and who will probably tell her story. There's a woman who was going to get married and was diagnosed right before her wedding. Um, I actually have a friend of mine's daughter in a similar situation who, at 30, was diagnosed. And for her, the most important thing was to show up at her wedding with her hair. And she has gone through multiple different chemos, and she still has her hair. And so she's ready to go on with that wedding. And this other woman was going to bypass chemo because she didn't want to be bald at her wedding. And so if you in that brochure, you see a picture of her with beautiful red hair, and that was after chemo. Mm-hmm. So she's in Texas, and she probably won't fly in for this necessarily, but we have our recipients have a chance to fill out a pre-treatment survey and a post-treatment survey. We have hundreds of people who do that and who tell us what it's meant to them and why they did it and what the impact has been. So we've got a lot of data, and it all makes me wake up in the morning really excited to be able to spend another day um, sorry, doing this. You know, it's, I'm really lucky. So here you are hitting the road. What, is, what does your husband think about this? You're gone, you're gone a lot now. Yeah, it's my turn. Remember I told you about oh, chapters? Dude, okay. <laughs> I, uh, I married a very understanding. We're moving towards 40 years in February. So, you know, I think I got married at birth. But anyway, he he's I think he's proud. You know, I think he knows I found something. I spent the time supporting his career as, you know, at, at a certain stage where that was important. I spent the time raising, you know, two kids who are now launched and still you know, come home and still love to be around us and mostly, not always, but mostly. And now it's a time where I get to spread my wings and, and do something else. And he's very understanding and he's very supportive and encouraging. And, you know, he carries brochures with him to TED conferences and whatever else. So so. I'm going to start to wrap this up. Yeah. So uh, this is your stage. This is your platform. To learn more, it's hairtostay.org, how yes. people can learn more about you. My call to action is never underestimate the power of you as an individual, those listening to this, because it doesn't have to be a $1,000 check. Those <laughs> $1,000 checks are wonderful. It doesn't have to be that. No. Our average donation in the last 15 years of now raising over $20 million, our average donation is $10 which has now added up to over $20 million. And so I see the value. And statistically, that's not just in my organization. It's yeah. it's around the global planet of raising funds. It's the small donations yeah. that are Absolutely. contributing to the biggest results. Absolutely. We we work in small donations. I, I just When they add up to $1,000, I mean, it's very concrete that that is an entire treatment set for wow. a patient. But that's... 
you know, we have patients who finish chemo and they are so grateful they save their hair. They're not even recipients of ours. They do races and they, and they have people donate and it's, you know, a dollar, $5, whatever it is. It makes a complete and total difference to us. We are not an organization that is shooting yet for the the millions. We're shooting for the million because we would. Our goal would be to be able to take care of a thousand patients in a year, wow. and that'll cost us about a million, wow. two million and a half. Congratulations. So we're, we don't take no for an answer, though. So <laughs> we got to find ways. But well, thank you. Congratulations! And, just wow, this has just been uh, educational both in getting to know you as a beautiful person, but also the difference that we can all make in this. This is... Yeah. I mean, anyway, you know, there's me and my uh, my half-time colleague out of San Diego. We're pretty is lean. Noah? Noah. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's wonderful uh, and runs a rehab center in the other half of his time. And I think we have just hired our very first... I think I get an executive assistant starting mm-hmm. in another... I'm so excited. I, mm-hmm. um, But I, you know, this is, this is a volunteer proposition for me because I'm lucky. And I found something that I can make a difference with. And I think... I hope everybody has the opportunity to do that in their lives. And it doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be deciding to participate. In, in not everyone has to invent something. They can join something in their own way. And stylists have a talent, you know, a serious talent to help people feel wonderful and beautiful. Everybody needs a why. Everybody needs a purpose. Yeah. And it can't be to buy the next... No. You know, that's Gucci empty. Shoes. That's empty. It's got to be. You know? It's got to be something of service. It uh, does. Bethany, do you have a final message for our listeners? Oh boy, I. <laughs> I, think I know you already yeah, shared so much. Have, it's not a very I, fair question I because have. I already dragged everything out of you. <laughs> um, you know, I, if I ever get to write a book, I have the title already, which is called "Living with Your Knees Bent." Wow. So I was paddleboarding on Donner Lake in the Lake Tahoe area a number of years ago, and I was pretty new at it. And I was out there on a Saturday morning, and like nobody was out. You know, it was this beautiful lake, and I was out kind of crossing the belly of the lake. And all of a sudden, this ski boat, you know, like a one of those with a skier behind it, comes just racing past me, and I'm watching the wake and going, oh, my God, you know. And what kept going through my head was bend your knees, bend your knees, bend your knees, because I understood that if I could be in that flexed position, I could ride out the wake. Mm. And when the wake came, I bent my knees, and I stayed on the board, and then when it was kind of passed, I pretty much collapsed onto the board <laughs> in somewhat of a praying position. And my heart was, you know, pounding. And I realized that that was a metaphor for really how to live a life and to be resilient is to live with your knees bent, to live with a flexed kind of position. Mm-hmm. And also knees bent is kind of to be humble to know that there are things to have a perspective, to be able to recognize that there are always situations that are far worse than yours. But if you can stay in a flexed position, you can ride out a lot of wake. 
And so I would say live with your knees bent, don't take no for an answer, and know that you got to give to get. Beautiful. I want that book, by the way. <laughs> okay. So get busy. <laughs> as soon as I have time. Spare time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you, Wendy. This Wynn. was really, really powerful. Beautiful. Thank you. I, was, I feel like I had an opportunity of a lifetime here. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks. Thanks.